you got your Bibles, open to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy 31 and then 2 Samuel 17 will continue our study uh, of the kingship of Absalom and, uh, and navigate these pieces uh, uh, together. So Deuteronomy 31 and then uh, we're going to jump into 2 Samuel 17. Um, study today starts with this question. Have you ever been at a point of real uncertainty before? You ever been at a point of real uncertainty before? Uh, just for the record, I don't know if you're like me. As long as I know what's in front of me and where I'm headed, uh, days are pretty good. But when things get cloudy, it makes me extra nervous, brings that blood pressure up just a little bit. And living in this city, I don't care who you are, where you've come from, how long you've been here. Uh, I'm telling you, there's a lot of uncertainty that we navigate uh, in this context. And so uh, the feeling that, uh, that kind of epitomizes it for me, uh, I've told you the story before, but uh, uh, it has to do with uh, a time that I quit a job without another job. And uh, I worked in student ministry back in those days and uh, quit a job without another job. I do not uh, encourage any of you to do that unless you absolutely have to. Uh, there's a lot of psychological struggle that comes uh, with that. And uh, I particularly remember uh, that uh, I had just quit without another job. I'd always worked as a youth minister and uh, preached on Wednesday nights. And my parents lived in a town called Frisco, Texas. And Frisco had an amazing Mexican food restaurant called Man. Annie's Mexican food, okay? It's no longer in existence. You cannot visit the point of my sadness, all right? But just know uh, that uh, Manny's was an awesome place. Well, on Wednesday nights, Manny's did an all-you-can-eat uh, bar that was open with enchiladas and fajitas, and I'd never gotten to go because I always was preaching on Wednesday nights. And so uh, I'll never forget, my parents are like, hey, you just quit your job. They were like, let's get you a nice Mexican food meal. Just come out with us, come eat, and we'll fill your belly, and it'll be good. You can finally do that all-you-can-eat meal at Manny's. Well, I didn't know that that was going to trigger all these feels and emotions because I had never been able to. And it was like the restaurant all of a sudden became the symbol that I didn't have a job. And so uh, I remember we go into Manny's, we sit down, I start to feel weird. And then my dad, who worked as a minister, all of a sudden, another minister comes from across the room, sees my dad, and he goes, hey, John, what are you doing these days? And dad goes, oh, I'm doing this and this. And he looks at him and goes, what are you doing these days? And I'm telling you, all of a sudden, it was like my stomach was up in my throat and I just could tell they're going to ask me what I do and I don't know what the answer is at this point. I just remember being so just nervous and so filled with anxiety over the uncertainty that I got up, I start to cry and I ran to the Caliche parking lot out there uh, in front of Manny's, fell on my knees and Autumn has got our, our oldest daughter Lulu was only four months old at the time. She's got her in a baby carrier and I'm out there just crying in the Caliche on my knees just crying there in the parking lot. And Autumn carries the baby out and she goes, what are you doing? She goes, well, crying in the parking lot. And I just go, because I don't do anything. And she was like, okay, that's a little dramatic, right? <laughs> now listen, that feeling of uncertainty, a week into not having a job, that feeling, you don't forget that feeling. In fact, I still to this day will have nightmares about that feeling, about that moment in the dirt. You know what the Lord would do later? Uh, that evening, my parents would meet with us. They didn't have extra money. My parents met with us, and they said, hey, we'd like to do something for you. And they handed us a check for $2,000. They didn't have $2,000. I can almost guarantee you they took it on debt at that point. But they wrote a check for $2,000, handed it over, and said, we believe in you. They said, use this to get on your feet and get started. It would just be a few weeks later that I'd get offered a job. 
uh, from Victory Life Church. Some of you know Victory Life has helped us get started out here. Uh, their point in our their uh, their position in helping with our journey to start Waterfront, we could not have done it without them, and the Lord knew that. And then my grandmother called. My grandfather had just moved into an Alzheimer's unit, uh, and my grandmother called and said, "If you need a place to stay, you can stay at our house for free." But that point in the caliche, that point on my knees where I didn't know how the Lord was going to put it together, that feeling of great uncertainty, maybe it's my lack of faith, but some of you might be going through the same thing. In the caliche, where I had felt like I had done the right thing to end up at this moment, you look up at God and go, God, I shouldn't have to do this. If you're really God, if you're really strong, if you're really sovereign, if you're really all-powerful, I shouldn't have to go through this time of trouble. Here's the thing. That's a lie straight from the pits of hell. At the end of the day, God is strong. He is sovereign. He is powerful. And when we go through times of trouble and difficulty, it's not a sign that God is not with us. Amen? You're going to have some moments where things are uncertain, where things are difficult, and he is writing an amazing, beautiful story through the process of you living your life. I want to prove it to you today. Look with me, if you will. Deuteronomy chapter 31, and we're going to start in verse 7. Deuteronomy 31, verse 7. You want to talk about uncertainty? Moses has just told Joshua, after leading the Israelites out of Egypt and wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, where the Lord has produced water from a rock and manna from heaven to feed them each day, all of a sudden, Moses tells Joshua, yeah, we're not actually going to enter the promised land with me. You're going to take them into the promised land because I've got to die. You want to talk about a moment of uncertainty? Joshua's always been the second in command, but the thought that he would be the one leading as Moses had led previously, I guarantee you he was scared to death. Look at what happens. Deuteronomy 31 verse 7. It says, then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, be strong and courageous. Notice this isn't to Joshua in private at this point. He's tried to encourage him in private previously, but in the presence of all Israel, in the presence of the whole country that's wandering in the wilderness, be strong and courageous, Joshua, for you must go with this people into the land the Lord swore to their forefathers, I love this, to give it to them, and you must divide it among them as their inheritance. Stop right there for just a minute. If you didn't think it was hard enough to take the promised land, any of you ever been a part of a really messy inheritance fight before? Here's the next picture. <laughs> Moses looks at him in front of the whole country and says, not only is Joshua going to lead you to the promised land, but he's going to take care of that inheritance fight amongst the rest of you uh, after I go. I mean, I'm telling you, Moses got the better end of that deal. You know what I mean? Uh, look at what happens next. So what does the Lord say? The Lord himself goes before you, verse 8. He will be with you. Underline, he will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. Fear and discouragement creep in when we feel like it's all on us and the Lord is not guiding the ship. What are we reminded here? The Lord himself goes before you. He will be with you. He's not going to leave you and he's not going to forsake you. If you're taking notes, write this down. No matter what uncertainty clouds our future, we can be sure of this. God is with us. No matter what uncertainty clouds our future, we can be sure of this. God is with us. If some of you are in a series or a time of uncertainty when it comes to your job, when it comes to your health, your finances, or maybe just even in the way that we perceive the government in the world around us, uh, wars that are taking place overseas, wherever you are at this point, you need to know if you are in a moment of uncertainty where all of a sudden you feel the pressure of that, remember, God will never leave you and he will never forsake you. You are not going through this time 
alone. Uncertain times are only uncertain for us. God is fully aware and he is fully in control. So what do we do when we start to question God's will for and his involvement in our lives? And that's the big million dollar question we're going to look at today. What stirs us to question God's will for and involvement in our lives? The goal of the message today is that we could identify the triggers that cause us, whenever we've laid plans together, whenever we've put effort towards something, whenever we've had a deep desire uh, for things to go one way, and all of a sudden the stirring in our spirit is, God, if you're really God, then why should I have to go through this? Why should I have to put forth the extra effort? Why should I have to navigate this time of difficulty? For some of you today, if you are in a time of uncertainty, this is a great lesson to take notes on so that you can identify those triggers and not allow them uh, to uh, chip away at your faith. And for others, of you if time's going real good right now. It's still a good time to write this information down because eventually you will go through a time uh, that seems like things are spinning into uncertainty. So what stirs us to questions God's will for and involvement in our lives? Now flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 17 starting in verse 15 and we'll continue our study uh, of Absalom and uh, Athropel and Hushai and David and Jonathan and Ahimaaz and Zadok and Abathar. We're going to look at the way uh, the nation of Israel unfolds. So remember, David and his household are on the run. Absalom has assumed the throne. Uh, but Absalom, last week when we were studying, chose to take Hushai's advice to strengthen his position instead of Ahithropel's advice to chase David down uh, and to kill him while he was on the run. Now look at verse 15. So Hushai now has to go and tell David move beyond the river. Don't just stop like the plan. Move beyond the river uh, so that you can fortify your position. Look at verse 15. It says, so Hushai told Zadok and Abathar, the priest and the assistant high priest, the priest, Ahithropel has advised Absalom and the elders of Israel to do such and such, and I have advised them to do so and so. Uh, the uh, Hebrew equivalent there is yada yada, right? The yada yada is the whole first two chapters of the story, right? Now we get verse 16. Now send a message immediately to David and tell him, do not spend the night at the fords in the desert, cross over without fail, or the king and all the people with him will be swallowed up. So Jonathan and Ahimaaz were staying at Enrogel. These are the, the sons of Zadok and Abathar. It says a servant girl was to go and inform them that they were to go and tell King David, for they could not risk being seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and he told Absalom. So the two of them left quickly and went to the house of a man of Baharim. He had a well in his courtyard, and they climbed down into the well. His wife took a covering, spread it over the opening of the well, and scattered grain over it, and no one knew anything about it. So when Absalom's men came to the woman at the house, they asked, where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman answered them. They crossed over the brook. The men searched but found no one, so they returned to Jerusalem. Now stop right there for just a minute. If you ever saw a movie or a play called The Sound of Music, this is very kind of similar to the scene that you get at the end of The Sound of Music. Remember, the family's on the run. They're trying to get away. In this case, uh, Ahimaaz and Jonathan have this information that's going to save David, save his family, and in a sense, save the nation of Israel as well. And so what do they do? They run, but then they get to this point where they can't get away from the foot soldiers. So when they get there, all of a sudden, the owner of the house says, climb down into this well. I'm going to cover it up with a tarp, 
with a, with a covering, and then I'm going to spread grain over it so that it looks like the well isn't working, right? How does the whole thing come together? Because a young man who's loyal to Absalom, loyal to the new king, all of a sudden he goes back and tells him, just like in Sound of Music, that guy who blows the whistle right there at the end, right? He goes and gets the foot soldiers. Well, here, all of a sudden they're hiding at the bottom of this well, but you got to picture this. They have life and death information that's for David, for his family, and for the nation of Israel. Life and death in that moment. And the center of God's will for them is at the bottom of that well. Very, very interesting. What causes us to question God's will for or involvement in our lives? Number one is uncomfortable circumstances. When you get into an uncomfortable circumstance... Sometimes the best place you can be for the kingdom of God is at the bottom of a well, a place where you personally are very uncomfortable and you know you can't stay there forever. And yet for that moment, there is no better place for these two men to be than at the bottom of that well. Being in an uncomfortable season does not mean that God has abandoned you. Again, being in an uncomfortable season does not mean that God has abandoned you. For some of you, when you go through a tough time at work, a tough time with health, a tough time with money, a tough time with moving, sometimes we can start to look at God and go, you know, I shouldn't have to go through this. Lord, I'm one of your people. I'm one of your disciples. I'm one of your followers. I shouldn't have to go through this time of difficulty. And the Lord's looking at us and going, I'm not needlessly putting you through a time of persecution and trouble, but I am bringing about something beautiful. And the best place for you to be is at the bottom of that well. If you don't take anything else away from today, write this down. Are you ready? Sometimes being in the center of God's will involves hiding at the bottom of a well. Let me say that again. Sometimes being in the center of God's will involves hiding at the bottom of a well. There's a fantastic movie that illustrates this point. It's one of the finest pieces of American cinema. Of course, I'm referring to the movie Top Gun, all right, the original one, okay? Just for the record, you got one more month to see Top Gun Maverick, and then those stories are coming out in the sermon, all right? I just want you to know that. You've been warned, all right? So the original Top Gun movie. There's a scene that kind of illustrates the way the whole thing comes together, the point of the entire series. And it's the first scene where Maverick is not the top dog flyer, who's the top dog flyer in the first scene of the movie? Can anybody tell me? Not Iceman. Iceman's later on. Doesn't meet him. Who's he flying with in the very first scene? Cougar. Cougar is correct. Cougar is the best pilot on the aircraft carrier, according to the bald guy from Back to the Future, who apparently runs the aircraft carrier, all right? (laughs) So here's the deal. Bald guy from Back to the Future, do you remember? All of a sudden, Cougar... And Maverick and Goose are flying together, but then the Russian MiG flies through. And what happens? It's not going to start a war, but it targets Cougar, and it causes Cougar to go crazy. He becomes cognizant of the uncomfortable circumstances that are surrounding him. And all of a sudden, he gets nervous. His voice starts to shake. He starts to sweat. They change the music, right? They have him stare at the picture of his family over and over again because he's realizing what's at stake. Can I tell you what's interesting? He comes in, throws his wings on the table, says, I almost orphaned my family today, man. Uh, man, I've got to turn in my wings. And do you remember? That's how Maverick and Goose get to go to Miramar and fly at Top Gun. Don't miss this, okay? Silly example that I hope sticks with you. For Cougar, it was just as dangerous before as it was after. 
He's a fighter pilot flying around with enemy aircraft all around. What's the difference between the moment he turns in his wings and two days before that? There is no difference. It was always that scary. It was always that uncomfortable. He just became cognizant of it. That's the city. Everything in the city is terrifying. Everything in the world right now is absolutely terrifying. But either we believe God's on his throne and he's in charge, or you stink and don't. At the end of the day, you got to come to the point where you go, you know what? God is God and I am not. And the uncomfortable circumstances that I'm sitting in in this time are no different than the uncomfortable circumstances people sat in 2,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago. Amen? We got to remember that. What does he say? The old bald uh, guy who's uh, in charge of the aircraft carrier, he goes, cougar lost his edge, turned in his wings. That cannot be believers in Jesus Christ. Lost our edge, turned in our wings. World's out of control. The world's always been out of control. But God is sovereign and he is in control. Amen? When we forget that, we get into a mess. God has not abandoned us. I have a life's verse, Psalm chapter 16, 8 through 10. Feel for that up on the screen. Next to verses on salvation, this is the verse that has been the most important to me and to my family. I memorized it right after I graduated from college, in between the time when I took my first real job in ministry. Uh, and it was a very hard verse to memorize. It doesn't quite have a normal flow to it, but it's the words that David, as an older man, quotes looking back on his life. And here's what it says. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad... My tongue rejoices, and my whole being will remain secure. For you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to even see decay. little side note here. If you memorize long verses, a lot of times the peace that God speaks to your heart through those long verses is very, very potent. With this verse, it starts off David saying, Lord, I put you first in all things. And the payoff is because he's at my right hand. I'm not shaken. My heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My whole being remains secure. And I know in my heart of hearts, God, you will not abandon me and you will not allow me to even see decay. What a beautiful thing for us to remember when our eyes are open and we become cognizant of the terror that's all around us all the time. God is still in control. He's still on his throne. And the circumstances and our cognizant nature of understanding them doesn't change anything. He's still God, and he's still in charge. It begs this question, are you ready? Are you inaccurately tying God's presence to you feeling comfortable? Let me say that again. Have you inaccurately tied God's presence to you feeling comfortable? Again, your comfortability, we sang about it moments ago, doesn't matter how I feel. At the end of the day, God is still God, and we just have to acknowledge that. Now look at what happens next. Again, they're at the bottom of a well, and now they're moving along with the information. Look at verse 21. It says next, So after the men had gone, the two men climbed out of the well, and they went to inform King David. And they said to him, Set out and cross the river at once. Ahithropel has advised such and such against you. There's the yada yada again, right? 
So David and all the people with him set out, underline all the people with him, and crossed the Jordan by daybreak. Underline by daybreak. No one who was left had not crossed the Jordan. Stop right there for just a minute. You got to picture this from the whole story. David and his family, which includes women and young children, have left Jerusalem. They've climbed the Mount of Olives. I mean, it has not been an easy journey at all. All of a sudden, they keep going. They're moving towards the river. And this entire time, David's been saying to his household, if we can just make it to the river, if we can just make it to the river, if we can just make it to the river. And just like on the Oregon Trail video game, everybody is nervous about crossing the river, all right? Everybody's nervous about that moment. Watch any story about pioneers, and what are they the most frightened of? That moment when you got to ford the river. It's not only the river, but it's the middle of the night. David's been telling his family, if we can just get to the river, don't worry about that. We'll do it when we're rested. And all of a sudden, the two young men run up and they go, yeah, you got to cross now. You got to go tonight. You think David's family didn't put up a fight after that? We're so tired. But David knows God has put this moment together. They tell the well story about how all this information got out. And then David looks and goes, well, I guess we're crossing tonight, kids. I guess we got to keep making a move. Uncomfortable circumstances. And number two, what causes us to question God's will for and involvement in our lives? Number two is extra effort. Extra effort. If I'm in David's circumstances, I'm looking at God and going, really? We evacuated the city. We've traveled all this time. And now we got to cross the river, the most dangerous part of the whole trip. And we got to cross it at night when we're exhausted. Your extra effort is going to go somewhere. I want to encourage you. In this city, we got all sorts of extra effort that has to take place just for us to live here. All right? Sometimes during the pandemic, I would find myself looking online at a house in Texas in the little Lubbock community that I grew up in. And you sit there and you go, you know, my 1,400-square-foot house in Lubbock, Texas cost me $124,000, all right? And you look back here and you go, and here for that same 1,400-square-foot house, it would cost me $8 million. No, I'm just kidding, something (laughs) like that, right? Can I just tell you, if you are from somewhere else, or you're from here and you start looking at places where it would be cheaper to live. I could own my own island, right? I could do whatever. Look at me. You're not doing yourself any favors by looking and seeing what you could do if you live somewhere else on the money that you're making here. You're not doing yourself any stinking favors with that. Your extra effort is going to go somewhere. Have you ever thought about that before? Every one of us have the same 24 hours in the day. Your extra effort's going to go somewhere. Whenever you look at God and go, ah, it's taken me so much extra effort to do this thing you've called me to do, what would you rather do? Are you ticked off that you can't binge a Netflix series all night? Is that what you're really upset about, that you can't drive a nicer car, that you can't live in a bigger house and have a bigger yard? Is that really why you question God's will and design for your life? I want to encourage you. Your extra effort's going somewhere. Figure out if the place that you're placing it is actually worth what you're putting into it. Silly example, but I hope it's... By the way, a little quote here, and then I'll give, tell you a story. Sometimes trusting God's sovereignty means working through the night while fighting exhaustion. Let me say that again. Sometimes trusting God's sovereignty means working through the night while fighting exhaustion. I've met a lot of people over the years that believe that trusting God's sovereignty means that if you need to get from the edge of this carpet to the end of the stage that you just plop down and go, well, if it's God's will, he'll do it. I trust his sovereignty. 
And if it's God's will, that's going to happen. Can I tell you what I've learned over the years? Sometimes the most faith-filled, sovereignty-trusting thing you can do is go, Lord, I feel like you've called me to go to the end of the stage. My human effort, if I work as hard as I possibly can, can get me to the edge of the carpet. And it is a massive act of faith to sprint to the edge of the carpet knowing that the Lord's going to carry you the rest of the way. That's how you view God's sovereignty, like a cognizant adult. Not like, well, if I'm supposed to do it, he'll airlift me out of here and put me in that position. Where's your sacrifice of faith? By just sitting in one place, doing nothing? Trusting God's sovereignty, in many cases, is going, Lord, I can get to the edge of the carpet, and I'm going to trust you to carry me to the edge of the stage. Your extra effort is not a sign that God is not with you. In many cases, he is writing a beautiful story in and through your life. So some of you may have noticed I'm wearing some very fancy shoes today, all right? TJ got these for me. I'll share a little story. It goes along with hopefully the sticks with you. Had the Lord call for an extra effort moment in my life that was really, really weird. And here's the thing. The weird moments produce the best stories, all right? Just going to be honest with you. So I got to preach uh, at the Fellowship of Christian Athletes Coaches Camp a few weeks ago. Uh, and uh, while I was there, um, uh, Coach, uh, Coach uh, Steve Keenum, his son Case, a uh, professional quarterback, but Steve spoke at my father's funeral and is the FCA coordinator, Fellowship of Christian Athletes coordinator uh, for a central portion of Texas. And so uh, he does a camp each year that he and my dad used to do together um, where Steve brings the FCA reps in for the region, but also junior high, high school, and collegiate uh, uh, coaches and their families to do a big family camp together. And so there were 200 families uh, at this event that we got to do together, and I got to be the preacher uh, for the, uh, the coaches and for, uh, for the uh, adults portion of that. Uh, of that week. And so it was a really special deal. Flew down to Riosa, New Mexico, uh, and spoke at their civic center. And so I'll never forget, um, we're doing the last night, and Coach Keenum walks up to me before the service, puts his hand on my shoulder, and he says, I'm praying that God will do something in your life tonight, in my life personally, that he's never done before in your life. And so I was like, man, what a beautiful prayer to pray. And then my head's kind of on a swivel watching to see what's going to happen. And so preach the message. We've got this married couple that prays to receive Christ that night. Uh, professors at a university. It was just a really, really cool and special moment. And at the end of the service, we've got the cooks and the servers for the Civic Center that are at the back listening to the message. Well, as the sermon's over, we've got the group there together. My daughter Harper, or my eight-year-old, is there. She came with me for the week. And so we've got all these families there. Well, a man comes up afterwards, one of the servers, talks to one of the cooks, the lead chef, and says, this really spoke to me tonight, and I think the Lord is talking to me. Well, then he goes, this guy was a Christian, the chef was, and he said, let me go get the main speaker, and let me go get the, uh, the guy who's in running the organization, Coach Keenum, and he said, let's, let's have you talk to him. And so we sit down together with this young man. He says, first, I want to call my girlfriend and my daughter. I want them to be up here for this discussion too, which was a little bit abnormal. But he goes, gets them together. We sit down. He has no idea I'm a DC pastor, and he has no idea that Coach Keenum's son is a multimillionaire quarterback, right? And so we're sitting down there together. This guy gets down. The guy sits down. We get to talk, and he said, I need to say something to my wife and to my daughter. He said, the Lord's spoken to me tonight. He said, I'm addicted to heroin. He said, I've been two years clean he got to be a part of a deal called Christian Challenge. He said, I'm two years clean. He said, but two days ago, he said, 
I got scared. I felt alone, and I used again. Now, just for the record, I told him this too. There's a lot of drugs that want to take you for a ride. Heroin wants to kill you from the first time you use it. Over the years of ministry, we've seen a lot of people kick different drugs. Heroin is the one that we found over the years that by far is the toughest to kick. Lots of people end up dying from that. Don't even mess with it. Highest high you can have with heroin is the very first one. And then you chase it over and over and over again by doubling dosages. And you just can never get back to it. It's impossible. That thing tries to destroy you from the moment that you take the first hit. Walk him through that. I'm praying for him. And then all of a sudden, Coach Keenum begins to talk to him. Guys, again, his girlfriend and his wife, or his girlfriend and his daughter right there next to him. And then all of a sudden, I feel this kick in my gut, and the Holy Spirit drops a thought into my head, which, by the way, is the way, I've told you that before through the series, that's the way God typically speaks to me. Kick in my gut to like identify it, and then an idea comes from the Spirit that I never could have come up with on my own. So I'm sitting there with this guy, kick, and all of a sudden, it drops into my head, give him your shoes. And I'm like, give him my shoes? It's like, Lord, that's weird, all right? That's very, very strange, all right? And I served the Lord for a living, all right? But I was like, that is weird, okay? Give him my shoes. I was like, it's not like I know what, what how, how do we even wear the same size is what I thought. It was like, yes, I'm a heroin addict and I wear a size 12, you know what I mean? He didn't say that, okay? So I'm just like, it's very strange. But I'm telling you, I feel this kick, give him your shoes. He was wearing Crocs too, so there's no telling what size shoe he has. I was like, this is so strange, but I can't shake it. And I remember saying to the Lord, why should I have to do this? I don't have another pair of shoes. Why should I have to do this? This is so weird. But we've been saying this, one of the songs we sing here is, God, I give you my yes. I give you my yes. It's a beautiful thing to remember. I was like, you know, I told the Lord I would do whatever. Coach Keenum prayed over me that the Lord would do something new in my life tonight. So I stopped when Coach Keenum finished talking. I looked the guy square in the eye and I go, this is going to sound so strange. But the Holy Spirit told me to give you my shoes. He goes, what? I go, you think that's weird? He goes, it is weird. And then I go, what size shoe do you wear? He said, I wear 12s. I wear 12s. I look at him and I go, 12 is my size. I pull the shoes off my feet, show him the size. And all of a sudden, his girlfriend and his daughter just start to weep, just weep right over there on the side. And I remember he looks And he goes, you're giving me your shoes. Those are the Air Force Ones I've been wearing. I really loved them. Athletic clubs, they were nice. $100 shoes. And I just go, these are for you. For whatever reason, the Spirit wanted me to give you shoes. He takes the shoes. He holds them to his chest like this. And I said, what does it mean? He said, this is my last chance. He said, I just know it. This is my last chance. He goes, a stranger handed me the shoes off his feet. And I'm standing. I hadn't worn socks that day. I don't even have socks on. And so I'm just like barefoot in the hallway of the Civic Center in Rio Dosa, Millers. I mean, y'all are from there, right? I'm barefoot in the halls of the, of the Civic Center. And I'm telling you, everybody's just looking like, what in the world? And he's holding them and he goes, this is my last chance. Now, here's the deal. I don't know how the story ends. My prayer is that five years from now, I'd see him walk through the door in the tattered pair of Air Force One shoes that he's worn. He asked me, then he goes, what do you think it means? And I said, walk with Jesus. I said, maybe that means here at the end, walk with Jesus. We get him plugged in. I had a friend who was one of my interns who's working at First Baptist Church in Riodosa. We got his daughter connected to the student ministry, and we got him connected. The minister has been meeting with him every single week there uh, in Riodosa since that week. I tell you that story just to say this, the extra effort 
I'm standing in the hallway after I've preached a week at camp, and the story made its way around really fast. The preacher gave some guy his shoes, one of the servers gave his shoes, and my eight-year-old harpy comes up, and she comes up, and she goes, Daddy, where are your shoes? I said, the Lord told me to give them to that guy, and she looks down, and she goes, the Holy Spirit? And I said, yeah, the Holy Spirit told me to give them to that guy. It was so bizarre to watch. I didn't tell this in the first service, but y'all can hear this. We go to visit my grandmother in Lubbock after that. I hadn't put the two together. We go to visit my grandmother in Lubbock after that, and um, she's in, it's not a nursing home, it's kind of a, you hate to call it a halfway house, you know what I mean, but it's kind of, you know what I'm talking about. Not a nursing home, but you know, it's not exactly retirement living, and so anyway, so my grandmother, we go to visit her, and my grandmother has uh, just been alone for a long time, and uh, I remember we go into the nursing home room, and when we get there, um, Harpy walks up, eight-year-old, Harpy walks up, and she says, can I give you a hug? And my grandmother is not touchy, okay? If you know her, she's, she's not touchy. And so my grandmother, she walks up, and Harpy hugs her, and she doesn't let go. And it was just like, like to where it became awkward. She's an eight-year-old. Eight-year-olds don't like hugging old people. And she's just laying on her. And my grandmother goes, uh, you can probably go now. <laughs> and Harpy just stops. And for five minutes, she doesn't let go just holds up my grandmother who was so uncomfortable. I snapped a picture of it, just this peace and this grin. And she goes, you're not going anywhere, are you? And she stops. It was the most beautiful moment. I said to our eight-year-old afterwards, who's a believer in Jesus, I said to our eight-year-old, I was like, why did you do that? And my sweet little eight-year-old goes, the Holy Spirit told me to. Like your shoes. Now listen, the extra effort, when we look at God and go, why should I have to do this? You get to do this. You get to be a part of the eternal story that God is chiseling in stone for all of eternity. We get to be a part of that. It's alive, the enemy whispered in your ear, if God's really God, you shouldn't have to do this. It's the same stinking lie he's been spewing on us since the garden. If God's really God, why would he create a tree that you couldn't eat from? Why do you have to obey his rules in the first place? It's the same stinking lie. And then before you know it, he distracts you and discourages you out of doing what you were made to do. It begs the question, do you perceive God's favor in your life in reference to how little he asks of you? Let me say that again. Do you perceive God's favor in your life in reference to how little he asks of you? You realize the favor of God could more accurately be connected to the massive movements of faith he asks from you in your life. The massive asks that he asks rather than he doesn't ask anything of me. God must love me, right? Again, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense when we compare that to Scripture. God loves all of us. But man, when he asks something big of us, it's something eternal that he's writing in our lives. And then we get kind of a sad verse to close on. Look with me if you, I say kind of a sad verse, truly a sad verse to close on. We get the end of Ahithropel's story in verse 23. It says, When Ahithropel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown he put his house in order and then hanged himself. Underline, and then he hanged himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. So Arthropel, remember, is Bathsheba's grandfather. He's David's chief, chief of staff. He has been chief of staff now for two kings there in Israel, for David and then also listed David and for Absalom. He is brilliant. 
But with all the faith that he observed in David's life, for him, he had to be in control. He had to be the smartest guy in the room to the point that in this passage, rather than seek out David and cry out for mercy, instead revenge has become such a central figure in his life, he would rather maintain the illusion of control and take his own life. He saddles his donkey, he goes out to his house, he controls everything he can control, and then he removes himself from the situation. If you're taking notes, what stirs us to question God's will for and involvement in our lives? Number one, uncomfortable circumstances. Number two, extra effort. And number three, busted plans. Busted plans. This is a big one for those of you in this room who are really, really smart. And there's a lot of you. If you are really, really smart, you need to know. Brilliance begins with understanding there is a God and you're not him. Amen? He is in charge. He is in control. And the plans that we put together are but suggestions to Almighty God because he is the one who is writing the story. When your plans fall apart, you've got two paths that you can go down. The first is to go, Lord, you were clearly up to something. I put time and effort into this. I tried to do it as godly as possible. But at the end of the day, you clearly have something else that you want to bring about. On the other side, we can also look and go, I've lost control and now I have to do whatever I can to get it back. The deal is, the control that you have is an illusion. There is no control apart from Almighty God. He is the one who's in control. What we can do is we take our hope, and when we place our hope in something that's not Jesus, it has no place to go but completely fall apart at some point. If you're taking notes, a little quote here for you. Last quote today. You can never lose hope if you place it firmly in the hands of Jesus. You can never lose hope if you place it firmly in the hands of Jesus. It begs the question, where have you placed your hope today? Where have you placed your hope today? Do you put it into Jesus or do you put it in that big old brain of yours? Your brain's awesome. But do you realize your brain can be gone in an instant when you've done absolutely nothing wrong? Both Autumn and I have had grandfathers that have passed away from Alzheimer's. Your beautiful brain can be gone in an instant. The number in your bank account can be gone in an instant. Even the people that you love and that you trust in the most, to put your hope in them, they are just frail earthen vessels like we all are. You know where I struggle putting my hope the most, just being honest with you, is in my wife. She's my best friend. She's the strongest person I've ever known. She's truly my partner in every stinking way. She's, she's the best. I regularly have to stop and remember she is no firm place for me to place my hope. The only place that's firm is to place that in Jesus. Here, career, career seems like a very special place to put your hope. But your job can be done every two years out here. The deck gets reshuffled constantly. You can lose your job over nothing. Some of you work in tax law. I'm telling you, you can lose your money over nothing too. Just takes one little sway of the, of the pen, and then all of a sudden, that money's gone. I want to encourage you. Where is it that we place our hope? If it's anywhere but the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, it's in a place it doesn't deserve to be. Where have you placed your hope? We have to trust the Lord. The end of the story, by the way, on the shoes, is I give my shoes away, those Air Force Ones. But a pair of black and white Jordan 1s are what I always have wanted. 
So TJ Stout, I mean, you know our student minister, TJ. If you go online on the Nike sneaker app, okay, they do these raffles for shoes. Nobody ever wins, all right? You know, nobody that you know ever wins, right? TJ goes online and wins these sneakers in my size. And the day I come back from FCA camp, they were sitting on my desk in my office. Holy Lord, right? Takes care of us piece by piece, bit by bit. And now I get to look fancy up here with you guys, all right? <laughs> I tell you that just to say this. Trust him. When, we have, when you're tempted to look at him and go, Lord, I shouldn't have to do this. I shouldn't have to put forth that effort. I shouldn't have to be uncomfortable. I should be able to make plans. When we look at him and you realize he's God, I'm not. He's in control. And so, Lord, come what may, I will trust you. Your blood pressure goes down and you don't have to turn in your wings like cougar. You can keep flying the missions. Is that a good word, Slagle? Keep flying the missions, all right? Let's bow our heads for prayer.